Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.bbc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. If you like your plan, you may keep it. If you like your doctor, you may keep him. Now, I'm not trying to be political this morning or casting any stones at anybody, but our president has gotten in trouble over the past few weeks by saying one thing and then having the result be something totally different. Now, I'm not here to say whether he lied, whether he misled, whether he was clueless. I don't know that. All I know is that our nation really wants a leader who has integrity. They want leaders who, when they say they're going to do something, they follow through on it. And that's why Congress has the highest disapproval rating in, I think, the history of modern modern America. And so when we think about integrity, when we think about honesty, even the non-Christian culture wants that among people. Now, why do I draw your attention to honesty and integrity. Well, we see it here this morning in Genesis chapter 6. What did we see last week? We saw the most difficult passage of Scripture in Genesis. We saw severe sin. Whether it was satanic sin or human-produced sin, it's severe sin. And then we saw God have sorrowful judgment over that sin. And then we saw sovereign grace in Him deciding to show mercy to Noah, this one man. And so this theme of Noah receiving grace and God having judgment over sin follows through in the rest of chapter 6. And so here's the big idea for this morning. Here's the big idea for this morning. The only appropriate responses to receiving God's sovereign grace instead of His severe judgment are Humble integrity and active obedience. Now that's a mouthful. What I want you to think about here this morning is humble integrity, active obedience. We're going to see this in the life of Noah. Now look at Genesis chapter 6 verse 8. We kind of ended our worship service last week with the statement, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, this was the first time the word grace shows up in the Bible. God graced Noah. God showed Noah grace. God showed Noah mercy. God is reaching down in His sovereign grace and showing mercy to one man, Noah. Now go back up to verse 5 and see the contrast. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the world in which Noah lived. Total depravity, wickedness, violence. Every imagination of humans' hearts was evil continually. And God in His mercy looks down and says, in the midst of this chaotic, sinful, wicked world, I'm going to show sovereign grace to Noah. I'm going to show mercy to Noah. 
I'm going to save Noah. And if you're a Christian here this morning, God has done that to you. In the midst of a pervasive, wicked culture, God has reached down and He saved you. God has shown you mercy. God has shown you sovereign grace. And so the question is, as a recipient of sovereign grace, as a recipient of salvation, how then do you respond? How do you live? How do you live a Christian life that shows a gratitude for the salvation you've received? Well, we see this in the life of Noah. So let's read the rest of Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, as we continue through our sermon series on Genesis. Verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die." But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive, and also take with you every sort of food that's eaten. And store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. I want us to ask four questions of this passage of Scripture this morning. Four questions that are going to help us understand what does it look like to live out your Christianity as a result of your salvation in a wicked world like Noah. So here's the first question. The first question we ask is this, what was Noah's character as a result of God's sovereign grace in his life? Now, let's not get the cart before the horse. In chapter 6, verse 8, Noah showed, or Noah received grace. Then in verse 9, we see three things about Noah in his life. And these can be summed up with the words, humble integrity. And we need to realize that these three things that we see in verse 9 come as a result of salvation, not to earn salvation. We've got to get this clear. Noah wasn't these three things, and God looked down and said, because he's these three things, he earned his salvation. No, these come as a result of salvation. So when God saves you, when God gives you His Holy Spirit, when God causes you to be born again, He gives you a new identity, and as a result of grace in your life, you begin to display a new character. You begin to live in a new way. And we see this in the life of Noah. And so in verse 9, we see these three things. 
These three character traits of Noah. And they can really be wrapped up in the term humble integrity. Let's look at the first one. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. This is the very first time the word righteous shows up in the Bible. It's speaking here of Noah's conduct in light of the culture around him. Now, we know what type of culture Noah's living in. It's wicked, it's corrupt, it's violent. Every inclination of people's hearts is wicked all the time. But in contrast to that, Noah is walking in righteousness. He is living rightly. And we have to ask the question, how do we fall prey to the culture around us? It would have been very easy for Noah to fall prey to the culture around him when everybody is wicked, when everybody's acting crazy. But Noah doesn't do this. Listen to what Romans 12.2 says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't be conformed to this world. And so Noah is walking as a man that wasn't conformed to the world around him. He was walking righteously. He was living in distinction from the culture around him. But notice the second thing it says about Noah here. He was blameless. Now it doesn't say he was perfect. Nobody's perfect. The word in the Hebrew language really means sound, complete. We would say a man of integrity. Noah was walking with integrity. In other words, his life matched up in all areas. He wasn't one way at church and another way out in the business place. He wasn't one way among his friends and then another way around other people. His life matched up. He was a man of integrity. Now, I came across an interesting statement this week that was in Reader's Digest back in 1991, so it's kind of dated. So I'll read it the way it was written in 1991, and then I'll modify it for, for modern day. It defined a hypocrite as this. A hypocrite can be defined as someone who complains that there's too much sex and violence on his VCR. Now, we don't have VCRs today, so we can say on your DVR or on your Netflix queue. Are you a person of integrity? Is the world around you squeezing it into it, you into its mold? Or are you walking in distinction from the world around you? Are you a person of integrity? Are you blameless? And then look at the third thing it says about Noah here. He walked with God. The only other person up to this point that that's been said of was Enoch. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Enoch walked with God and God took him. It talks about this humble, intimate fellowship that you have with God, where you're walking with God. You're, you're, you're in step with God. You're walking in step with the Spirit. You're in deep fellowship with the Father. It's really similar to what Micah 6.8 says. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God. Now, as a result of being saved by grace... Are we to be perfect Christians that never sin? Impossible, right? We can't do that. But from Noah's life here, we see that the result of grace in your life, the result of salvation, is that you consistently demonstrate a life of integrity, of humility, 
of righteousness. And oftentimes, we don't use this word. It's become a dirty word in church these days. When was the last time you heard a sermon on holiness? Walking in holiness. Pursuing holiness as a Christian. An old Scottish preacher said this, Holiness is not measured by one great heroic act or mighty martyrdom. It is of small things that a great life is made up. Small things. Holiness is a million of little small things that as you continue to do them, stack up and bring out great things. The little decisions that you make the choices that you make, the little things. You see, oftentimes we think holiness is this big, huge decision I've got to make where I've got to take a stand for Jesus. Oftentimes in your life, holiness is those little decisions that you make every day to either not sin or sin, and those little decisions build up and they create a holy life that the Holy Spirit has empowered you to live. And so the question we've got to ask here is are we walking in righteousness? Are we walking in integrity? Are we walking in humility? Are we walking with God? Does our life match our profession of faith? Now again, these things did not earn Noah's salvation. It wasn't like God looked down and said, Noah was a perfect guy, Noah was righteous, and because of Noah's behavior, because of Noah's obedience, I'm going to save him. No, it's it's the opposite. God comes and saves Noah first, and as a result of having the Holy Spirit in him, he now walks in this way because he's a new creation in Christ, the same way it is with us as Christians. It's a fruit of of our salvation. Are there areas in your life this morning as you evaluate your life where you're not walking in integrity? You're not walking in holiness. I can't look into your hearts. I can't. I'm not going to be legalistic and try to give you a guilt trip, but I think that oftentimes we as Christians need to to examine our lives from time to time and ask the question, am I walking in integrity? Am I walking in holiness the way that God would call me to walk? So that's the first question. What was Noah's character? He was righteous. He was blameless. And he walked with God as a result of his salvation. Not to earn his salvation, but as a result of his salvation. Well, let's let's ask the second question. What was the world's character as a result of severe sin? Look at verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Notice the word corrupt over and over again. In the Hebrew language, there's a play on words here. The word for corrupt and the word for destroy are the same word. So God's basically saying here, the earth is so corrupt, I'm going to corrupt the earth. Or think of it the other world. The earth is already so destroyed, I'm going to destroy the earth. There's so much corruption. There's so much violence. It's an outflow back of verse 5. When the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, what what does that produce? Corruption and violence. The word is Hamas. Cold-blooded, greedy brutality. A world of violence. We live in a world of violence. When I was a youth pastor back in 1999 in Colorado Springs, we were shocked at Columbine that happened. The Columbine, right right up the road to us in Denver. And it impacted not only my students, but the state of Colorado and and the entire nation. 
That was 14 years ago. Do you realize today when there's another school shooting, it's not that it shouldn't be shocking, but it's so commonplace now. I mean, back then it was an anomaly. It was like a one-time thing, but it seems like almost every year, maybe even every six months, there's a school shooting. There's violence. We live in a violent, violent culture. We live in a violent world. A world of human trafficking, a world of prostitution, a world of violence on video games, a world of violence on TV. I came across a statistic the other day that said PG-13 movies are more violent today than they were 20 years ago and that R-rated movies aren't becoming more violent and PG movies aren't becoming more violent, but PG-13 movies are becoming more violent and that's the major demographic for the students and youth and children that watch movies. They're purposely trying to raise the violence. It was a world of self-destruction. These people were self-destructing. It was a world of corruption and violence and self-destruction. And here's the question I've got to ask for you. Are you on a path of self-destruction? Are there things in your life that are leading you to destroy yourself? Whether it's a particular sin, a particular habit, a particular... um, thing that you do, are you on the path of self-destruction? Are you so corrupted by this culture that it's literally destroying you? So the first two questions, what was Noah's character? He was righteous. He was blameless. He walked with God. What was the earth's character? What was the the sinful earth's character? Corrupt, violent, wicked. Third question, okay, how does God act? How did God act in sovereign grace and justice? How did God respond to this? God looks down and sees this. What does God do about it? Well, He responds in two ways. One with judgment, the other with grace. Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Go down to verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. God makes this solemn pronouncement. I've determined, Noah, to make an end of all flesh. To destroy the world. God's not mincing words here. It's not like you have to figure out what God's saying. He's very clear. He's very to the point. And God says the earth has become so corrupt, so violent, so wicked, so rebellious, I'm wiping it out. I'm acting in in judgment. I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy the earth. I'm going to purge the earth of evil and I'm going to purify the earth of evil through a flood. So God says in one way, I'm I'm getting rid of everything. I'm destroying the earth. Everything on earth shall die. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, there's another response. God says, I'm going to save Noah. I'm going to show grace. As a matter of fact, I'm going to enter into a covenant with Noah. Look at verse 14. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Okay, we really don't know what gopher wood was. It could be pine. It could be cypress. He's to make a boat, make an ark. And then he's told the dimensions, verse 15. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Anybody here know what a cubit is? I'm glad you don't because I didn't know either. So I'm going to give you the, the English dimensions. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 
45 feet high. It's a big boat. And one of the interesting things that's mentioned here, when God gives Noah the directions to build the ark, what's absent? There's no rudder. And there's no navigational guides. It's as if God is saying, I'm sovereignly going to guide this boat to its determined end. And we'll see in a few weeks how God actually does something exciting with the boat. But in the midst of that, God says down there in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. This is the first time the word covenant shows up in the Bible. Now, obviously, we saw the covenant of works a few weeks ago where God entered into a covenant with Adam. And God said, Adam, if you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. It was a conditional covenant whereby obedience brought about life, disobedience brought about death, and so it was more of a covenant of works. This is not a covenant of works because God says, I am establishing my covenant with you. Now, obviously, Noah has to obey and Noah has to build the ark, but God is saying, I'm not going to flood the earth ever again, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to save you. I'm going to, I'm going to put you in the ark. I'm going to seal you in the ark, and I'm going to start over with you, Noah. Noah almost becomes like a new Adam where God is going to propagate the human race through Noah now, the one man and his family that are chosen to be saved. So the third question we ask is, how did God act? Well, two ways. He acts in judgment. I'm going to flood the earth. The earth is so corrupt, I'm, I'm bringing it to an end. But the second way, he shows grace. I'm going to establish my covenant with you, Noah. I'm going to show you grace. Build yourself an ark. Enter the ark. But here's the fourth question. How did Noah act in response to this? God says to Noah, I'm going to judge the earth, but I'm going to save you through a covenant. Go build this ark. How does Noah respond? Well, look at verse 22. It's very telling. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, that's an amazing statement. Has there ever been rain yet? Has there ever been a flood yet? Anybody ever seen a boat yet? Noah does not argue with God, but he does everything that God commands him to do. Noah knows that he could have been destroyed just like the rest of the earth. Noah knows that he's no better than the rest of the earth. Noah knows that he's received grace, and so Noah obeys. Now what I want you to do is I want you to turn to Hebrews for just for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. And I want us to camp out there because the writer of Hebrews tells us a little bit more about what Noah did. Yes, we know Noah built the ark. We know that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. We know that Noah entered the ark. But it's interesting how the writer of Hebrews makes a commentary, gives a little bit more um, explanation as to the life of Noah. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Hebrews is toward the end of your Bible. Um, Go to Revelation and back up. Mine's on page 1007. So if you're there, um, if you need to use your table of contents, that's okay. Hebrews is this kind of a book that we don't go into a lot. Hebrews 11, verse 7. Let's read this together. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen like rain, like a flood, in reverent fear, 
constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, it's interesting. God speaks directly to Noah. Noah, build the ark, and I'm going to give you directions on how to do it. Go get gopher wood. Here's the dimensions. Make the planks. Take the animals. Build the ark. Get get all the supplies ready. I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to destroy the earth. There's this thing called rain that's coming. There's a flood coming upon the earth. Go out and do this. And Noah could have said, you know what, God, I, I believe you. Never seen rain before, but hey, it must be something you're going to do. Never seen a flood before, but hey, I believe you. Noah could have done all of that and done what? gone out and sat and twiddled his thumbs and done nothing. Would that have been faith? Would that have been active obedience? No. Noah demonstrates active obedience to the Word of God in two ways. In reverence and in practicality. In reverence. Notice what it says there in 11.7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed the ark in reverent fear. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that Noah was cowering over in a corner and he was afraid that God was going to zap him with a lightning bolt, that, that he was shaking in his boots? Is that the kind of fear that Noah has? No, it's a type of reverence. It's the same type of word that God said to Moses when he was before the burning bush to take off his sandals because he was on holy ground to, to bow in reverent fear. And so, so Noah builds the ark knowing that God is sovereign and God is powerful and it's a worshipful reverence. And, and it's, it's this type of a fearing God that comes from a love of God and a joy of being in his presence it wasn't like he was afraid a lot of times our obedience is wrapped up in our attitude how often do we obey God begrudgingly I'll obey God because you told me I'll obey because I have to I really don't want to do this God but I'll do it because I know if I don't people will say things about me and I may get punished and and I may things may go bad so God I'll just do it because I have to is that the kind of obedience God is looking for No, he's looking for joyful, responsive obedience where Noah built the ark in reverent fear. I'm building this ark with joy, with fear, with worship, with awe. I'm loving you, God, and I'm doing this as an act of worship because you told me to do it. I'm not doing it begrudgingly. But here's the second thing about it. He built the ark. He got busy and he built the ark. How long did it take for him to build this ark? Probably close to 100 years. He was 500 years old when his boys were born, and it says that he was 600 when he entered the ark. So let's just roughly say around 100 years of building this ark. Was this a glamorous thing to be doing? It was probably downright embarrassing. Why expose yourself to 100 years of mocking and ridicule by a wicked generation around you, building something that nobody's ever seen before, talking about something that nobody's ever heard of before, and warning them of impending flood? You're looking like a lunatic. You look crazy. Why put up with that for 100 years? Sometimes when God calls us to obey, it's not glamorous. You may be mocked, you may be ridiculed, it may not make sense to those around you, but we simply do it because God has called us to do it. There are some things that God may call you to do that everybody else looks at you and scratches their head and says, I have no idea why you're doing that. 
And you just simply do it because you're obediently following the Lord's call on your life. This is a message of faith. You see, Noah for a hundred years had to swing a hammer. And he had to believe that what he was building was actually one. Just think about it. Okay, I'm building this thing. It's been 10 years. No rain. It's 20 years. It's getting bigger. 30 years. Okay, let's go up to 50 years. Don't you think you'd kind of want to give up after 50 years? This is a long time, God. And everybody's coming and everybody's mocking me and nobody's ever seen rain before and it's just my sons and I trying to build this thing and everybody's making fun of us. You'd think maybe after 75 years he'd give up. No, he goes all the way to when God gives him a warning. We'll see next week. God comes and finally says, in seven days it's happening. Enter the ark. But notice what 11.7 says here in Hebrews. Noah does something else. Not only does he build the ark, but in the building of the ark, he does something. Look at the second half of verse, 11, of verse 7. By this, by the building of the ark, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He condemned the world. Now, what does that mean? He condemned the world. Him building the ark was a visual object lesson for a hundred years that God was going to destroy them for their wickedness. Now, we're not given a lot of the preaching details about Noah's ministry, but we do know that he was a preacher of righteousness. So did he stand up on the top of the ark and start with his megaphone saying, turn or burn? We don't know. Did he take a break from building the ark and go around and do crusades in the land and calling people to repent? Did people come by and did he have conversations? We don't know. All we know is that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, how do we know that Noah was a preacher? 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 5 says this. 2 Peter 2, 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald, that word herald means preacher, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah's preaching ministry lasted a hundred years. Now think about the mercy of God in this. God had already announced, I'm going to destroy the earth. Does He do it immediately? No, there's about a hundred years. A hundred years for Noah to look people in the eye that came by and said, you better repent. Repent of your wickedness. Repent of your violence. Repent of the evil imaginations of your heart. Repent. God is bringing a flood. There's a flood coming. There's a flood coming. Repent. Repent. And the people probably thought, ah, oh, this, this guy's crazy. God gave them a hundred years of grace. A hundred years to repent. And yet they still didn't. Romans 2.4 Do you presume upon the riches of His kindness? And forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Think about how often God's been patient with you. Has God given you multiple time and time again to repent before He brings discipline? And so Noah's life backed up what he preached. It would have been very easy, again, for him to give up, to be embarrassed, to not follow through, to preach this message of judgment to a world that didn't want to hear it, hear the barrage of complaints, hear, Noah, you're crazy. You believe there's only one way of salvation? Yes. A boat? Yes. Never heard of a boat. 
You believe there's this thing called rain that's going to flood the earth? Yes, I believe it. Why do you believe it? Because God told me. You are a narrow-minded bigot. Does that sound familiar? He had to put up with it for 100 years. And he's alone in this. It would have been very easy for Noah to say, God, I'm giving up. I've not seen one drop of rain. This whole boat thing is getting, getting big. And by the way, what's this deal with animals? You want animals to come on this thing? And you want us to go... This is crazy, God. Here's the thing with Noah. His faith was expressed in concrete action. It wasn't just lip service. It wasn't just talking a good talk. It was demonstrable, active worship. He built the ark in reverent fear. He condemned the world. And notice the last thing it said there. He became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. He became an heir of righteousness. In other words, God saved him by grace. He became an heir of righteousness. It doesn't say he produced the righteousness. He does not produce the righteousness. He does not bring righteousness to the table. He becomes an heir of righteousness. You realize that all the righteousness that you have to bring to God is like a filthy rag. You have nothing to bring to God. God does not accept your good works. God does not accept your good deeds. It's like a filthy rag. The only way you can be righteous is by receiving it from Christ. And that's what it's talking about here. We are guilty. We bring nothing to the table. We can't save ourselves. We can't earn our salvation. We, our righteousness is filthy rags. We've got, to, we've got to receive this righteousness outside of ourselves that comes as a free gift of grace through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3.21, he says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so that's the same thing that happens to us that happens to Noah. Noah believed God, and he received the righteousness as a gift outside of himself. When you trust in Christ for salvation, you don't bring righteousness to the table. You receive righteousness as a gift from Christ. That's why Paul can also say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now here's the interesting thing about the whole Noah story. Oftentimes we think of Noah's ark as this cute little animal story with Noah with his beard, these little animals, and they're floating on the water. This is not a pretty story. As a matter of fact, this is God coming in extreme judgment to flood the entire earth because of wickedness. And there's a warning in Noah's ark story that Jesus himself says about his second coming. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood... They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus compares His second coming with Noah and the flood. 
people walking around thinking that everything's cool, living their life however they want to live their life, eating, drinking, getting married, playing video games, going to work, doing all the things that you do, thinking that nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden, in in a flash, Christ comes back and there is judgment. And here's the issue that we've got to be very careful with. Noah, in Noah's time, God flooded the earth with water. In the second coming of Christ, it's not going to be a flood with water. It's going to be fire, an eternal fire in hell. It's going to be far worse than a flood. So here's the question. If Jesus says that he's coming back, and it's like the days of Noah, and Jesus is coming back in judgment, and Jesus is coming back to right the wrongs, and Jesus is coming back to, 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 to bring a consummation to all things, to bring judgment, the, the question that all of us should be asking is, how do I escape the judgment? How do I escape it? How do I flee the wrath to come? And here's what you do. You do exactly what Noah did. And you may say, well, that makes no sense, Pastor Sean. You want me to go out and build an ark? I got my hammer. I got got a few. I don't know what gopher wood is, but you want me to build an ark in my backyard? No. What did Noah do? Noah entered the ark. Do you know that Jesus himself is the ark? In Noah's day, there was only one way to escape the flood. There was only one door to the ark to get in. What does Jesus say about himself? I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also says, I'm the door. So how do you escape the wrath to come? You do what Noah did and you enter Jesus as the only way. And as a matter of fact, Jesus is the greater Noah. Now, Noah was just a man. He was righteous. He was blameless. He walked with God. He did everything that God commanded him. But as we'll see in a few weeks, he failed miserably. He was just a man. Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the only one that was 100% righteous. Never sinned. Jesus is the only one that's 100% blameless. 100% a man with integrity. Jesus is the only one that walked perfectly with God. And Jesus was the only one that did everything God had commanded him. So Jesus is the only one. He's the greater Noah that stands ready to receive all who would come to him. And when you connect yourself with Christ, when you believe with Jesus, that righteousness is given to you as a gift. And God can look down upon your life and say, you can be saved from the coming wrath of God because Christ has died in your place. And here's the irony of it all. Did Jesus deserve the flood of God's anger and justice against sin to come upon himself? He did not deserve that. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was righteous. And the irony of salvation is that Jesus chose to stand in the gap, to be the substitute, to die in our place. God determined to flood Jesus with our sins so that we could be the recipients of grace. Have you trusted in this Christ? If you're here this morning and you you know beyond a shadow of a doubt in your heart that, that you're not a Christian, you haven't trusted Christ for salvation. You know that you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You know that if the day that you died, you would stand before God and He would not allow you into heaven. If you know that this morning, 
May I give you an invitation to come to Jesus. Receive Him. Enter Him. Bow your knee to Him. Confess your love for Him. Trust in Him. Repent of your sins. And Christ Jesus stands ready with arms open wide to receive every sinner who would come and repent and place their faith solely in Him. So if you're here today and you've never done that, I can't be more clear. There's wrath to come. There's a second coming of Christ. Will you be ready for that by coming to Christ, Jesus? For those of us that are Christians, for those of us who've already been saved from the wrath to come, of those of us who've already entered the ark of Jesus, of those of us who've already entered Jesus as the one way of salvation, what's the message for us? God has saved you by grace. Not just so you can live however you want. Not just so you can get your free ticket and say, I punched my free ticket. I know I'm going to heaven. Once saved, always saved. Now I can go live however I want and do whatever I want and live just like the world around me because after all, I asked Jesus into my heart. No. God has saved you so that you by grace can be what God has called you to be. Like Noah. That you walk in righteousness. That you walk in humility. That you walk with God, that you walk in integrity, that you walk in active obedience. So would you this morning, by God's grace in your life as a Christian, pray that God would give you a heart to pursue Him in humble integrity and active obedience. And the only way we can do this is to keep our eyes on Jesus. We sang it earlier. Only Jesus. Give me Jesus. You don't do this by trying hard. You don't do this by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't do this by thinking that maybe if I just um, come to church enough, if I read my Bible enough. No, it comes in resting in the finished work of Christ and asking the power of the Holy Spirit to produce this within you. And God, by His grace, begins to incrementally give you the steps to walk in holiness. Those little steps add up to those big things. And then pretty soon you look back at your life and you realize you've been walking with God and you're making progress. Maybe it seems like you're not making progress, but you're making progress because God is birthing that in your hearts. Noah did everything that God had commanded him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Two words there. By faith is how the verse starts, and by faith is how the verse ends. So if you've never come to Christ by faith, would today be your day to do that for the very first time? If you're a Christian, would you live by faith in Christ and walk in integrity and walk in obedience for His glory? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And I want to ask you to do some self-evaluation. To examine, the Bible says, examine yourselves. The Bible says, let the Lord, in Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O Lord, know my way. See if there's any offensive way in me. Search me. And so, as we come to this point in the worship service, it's a perfect time to ask God to search your heart, to see if there's any way in you where you're not walking in integrity, you're not walking in holiness. Again, this is not to earn your salvation. This is, I'm talking to Christians here. Are you walking in the way that God has called you to walk as a born-again believer? 
Are there areas in your life that don't match up? Are there secret sins that you have that, you're, that you've not confessed and you've not repented of? Spend this time coming to the foot of the cross and asking for the grace that God gives you to restore you and to forgive you and to give you the strength to, to walk in obedience. And for the person here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, that you're not a believer, that you're not a Christian, that you haven't trusted Christ, ask God to search your heart and show you your need for a Savior. And would today be the day that you call upon Him as the only one who can save you? So spend just a few moments in silent prayer this morning asking the Lord to search your heart.